Welcome back to the 36th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the Build Back Better bill that got broken up into the Inflation Reduction Act is going to help workers and provide a green transition into the future, how the Democrats break the 12-mile limit when it comes to getting voters outside of cities, and an Israel-owned oil tanker was hit by a drone attack in the Sea of Oman. And then, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. Have the Democrats lost the blue-collar worker? So over these last few years, we've really seen a transition. We've seen the Republicans pick up a lot of these more rural, blue-collar voters. And that used to be the bread and butter of the Democrats. They used to have the unions. I mean, let's be clear, they still have the unions. But a lot of these blue-collar workers were in unions, and they voted for Democrats because the unions said, hey, they have our interests at heart, they have your interests at heart. But over the years, they've really lost those blue-collar people or voters, especially in the Midwest. But the Biden agenda, and Biden is one of the most pro-union presidents we've had in a generation, and his agenda is really focused on aiding workers. And whether you agree with how he's implementing most of the changes, he definitely has the idea in mind that he wants to help the worker. And as I'll point out here in this next article, there is actually a coherent strategy that can be pointed to. Whether or not you agree with how he's going about it, he at least has a strategy, and it actually makes logical sense when you step back and take a little breakdown of how he's going about doing most of his policy. So can this policy, plus Joe Biden's position and the Democrats as a whole, can they save their position with the blue-collar voters, or is the damage already done? And of course, you know, leave your comments down there in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Let's get in to our first article. And this one is coming from the American Prospect. Will the green transition build worker power? The IRS will help decide. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which was, you know, cleverly named, has more important and a very far-reaching impact. It is the largest investment ever by the U.S. government in fighting climate change. Quote, Congress designed the legislation with an expensive vision for what a green economy would look like, funneling resources towards creating well-paying jobs in communities that may be hit hardest by the transition away from fossil fuels. But congressional intentions don't implement themselves. The Treasury Department and IRS are about to issue regulations seeking rules for tax credits in the legislation. This technical exercise will have vast consequences for whether federal investments end up in the pocket of workers or Wall Street investors. And this is where the tire meets the pavement, so to speak. This legislation, at the end of the day, it can either benefit the people that it intends to or it's going to help Wall Street, and it's going to help the quote-unquote elites. And what this program really is meant to do is 
it's a supposed to target these under, not underdeveloped, but these communities that are very dependent on fossil fuels and allow them to transition, uh, basically subsidize them so that they can transition some of their industry. So if you have a factory that runs on 80% coal power right now in a Western Virginia town, they're going to subsidize that sector, that little small industry uh, area in West Virginia, and they're going to say, okay, if a certain percentage of your workforce is in a union or if a certain percentage of your workforce is are trainees or apprentices, then we'll give you tax credits so you can transition and then move away from some of this coal power. So they're trying to not only shift what kind of energy is being used, but they're also trying to ensure that workers are getting compensated properly and if there are new jobs in that sector, then they also get good paying jobs. That's really what the bill is trying to get at. And maybe it's not done in the most clever way ever. But remember, at the end of the day, Biden's policy agenda is I am going to help the working class people. And this is where I can I start to say you can see a little bit of the through line. And there's a connective tissue between some of his different legislation. And, you know, it was very hot when it came to the talk in Washington and across the nation about how it was passed as a budget reconciliation rather than actually having enough support to get it passed by both parties. It was a completely partisan measure and was put in as a a budget reconciliation, meaning, oh, we're just reallocating where money goes in the budget. So it's a little tricky the way they got it in there. But I think most people could agree that if this money goes to elites rather than the people it's intended to help, that's a bad thing. And at the end of the day, that's what this article is really trying to highlight here. They're not debating whether or not that these are great policies. What they're trying to get at is if this money goes to the wrong people, if it does not go to the worker, then the bill itself and Washington has failed. And I think that's the more important lesson to take away from this article. Quote, of the Inflation Reduction Act's estimated $369 billion in investments in climate change, combating climate change, a large majority, at least $270 billion, will take the form of foregone revenue through tax conciliations, concessions. These include incentives for generating renewable energy, credits for installing electric car vehicle charging stations, and deductions for building energy-efficient commercial buildings. But Congress attached strings to these tax giveaways so that the foregone revenue enables good quality jobs. To take advantage of the incentives, companies must ensure that 10 to 15% of construction work is done by apprentices learning new skills, enabling them to find full-time work in the industry. And they must pay all laborers and mechanics minimum prevailing wages set by the Department of Labor, which are soon to be substantially raised through new DOL regulations. If companies don't meet these high labor standards, they are not eligible for one-fifth of the tax credit or deduction, end quote. So, in order to check and verify and to ensure that these companies are actually keeping up with the 
high bar that Biden and the Democrats have put in place, they argue and they have put funding for the IRS in here. Because in order to have an idea of what is actually going on within those companies, you could send somebody out, you could send an inspector out, like from OSHA perhaps, and I don't know how that would work necessarily because it's not necessarily a safety issue here. Maybe a Department of Labor inspector and go out and ask around, see who's working what. Oh, well, but today, actually, Jimmy, one of our apprentices, he's not feeling well. You want to come back on a different day, he'll be here. There are ways to get around that. Whereas if they come from the approach of having IRS agents audit the company and look through and say, okay, they're paying this many people the right amount. Okay, they have this many workers that are apprentices because most of that has to be logged either by HR or accounting. So that's why, remember when the Republicans were making a huge stink about the extra billions that were being funded or given to the IRS for funding? And they were saying that it was going to be in order to go through and audit more people who are of the middle class and take your money. Well, this is the anti-argument to this, which is the IRS actually needs this funding in order to audit companies that are trying to take advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act tax incentives. And you can kind of see a pull from both sides here. I don't necessarily know that the IRS agents are entirely going to work for the good of the people and try to audit companies who are trying to get the tax credits. And I don't know that they're going to actively audit more middle-class people. We can't tell which they're going to do, but we can see what both sides have as their spin. Oh, they're trying to help the small companies and ensure that the laborers who at these companies are trying to take advantage of these tax benefits, that they're actually getting paid the right amount. And then the Republicans are saying, no, they're coming for your money in the middle class. And you can see the spin that both sides put on it. And that's why I'm not trying to say that Oh, yes, whether you agree with the Inflation Reduction Act or not. I'm not trying to get into that. I'm just saying it's important that you understand the arguments from both sides of the aisle. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't always happen, but at the end of the day, they're both going to speak to their bases, and the truth may lie somewhere in the middle. And the only way you're going to know where that middle is is if you've heard both arguments. So... At the end of the day, Biden and the Democrats see this as supporting their agenda of empowering the working class. It's a very cohesive integration. We're going to hire more IRS agents, not just so we can audit people, but so that they can audit the companies that we're giving these tax credits to that are going to raise wages for workers. And then on top of that, that are going to hire apprentices who are meant to take on more positions in the workforce in the growing amount of years. And a lot of these apprenticeships are normally funded through unions. So you can see how this is a large, cohesive, uh, kind of symbiotic bill where they're trying to make everything work in tandem for one goal, which is a good thing. At the end of the day, if you're going to make legislation, you don't make half-butt legislation. You make legislation that has actually thought through some of the issues. And, of course, there are other issues that are not being addressed, But on this one, it seems that they've put in a coherent plan that could actually be implemented if it is done right. But when you take a mile-high view, you can really see all the puzzle pieces fitting together. And it's not just Biden. The next article also talks about 
how, you know, they're Democrats are trying to get back in touch with their working class voters as well. And I think that this is a consensus on the left. They've realized that they have lost this base and they're actively trying to get back to it and talk to them and speak to them and bring them back underneath the Democratic wing because they're slowly losing their coalition of minority voters that they thought would take them into the future, which I highlighted in yesterday's, or I guess in this case, Wednesday's episode. When I'm recording this, it is yesterday's episode. All right, so our next article also comes from the American Prospect, Beyond the 12-Mile Limit. Have you ever asked why Democrats win cities but often lose the states as a whole? Well, if you have, you're in luck. Thomas Nelson gives us an insight into his race in Wisconsin during this midterm election to explain exactly that. Quote, when I entered the race, I knew that Barnes, who had not yet declared his candidacy but was likely to do so, would have the easiest path to the nomination. He had a strong following in Milwaukee and Madison, where two out of five Democrat primary voters reside. Being lieutenant governor gave him statewide name recognition, and his fundraising potential was unlimited. However, I also knew that Milwaukee-based candidates would have a tough time sledding in the general election, except for former Democrat Senator Herb Cole, whose positive name recognition matched the brand recognition of Cole's department stores across the state. No Democrat from Milwaukee had won a major statewide election in Wisconsin since World War II. Like all candidates for lieutenant governor, Barnes had won the office in 2018, not on the strength of his own appeal, but on that of being the head of the ticket. State Superintendent Schools, Tony Ivers, end quote. But Barnes and Nelson, they both grew up in blue-collar dominated locales. And that's a very important part of Nelson's story here. He highlights it every once in a while. But he grew up in a small town where a lot of the workforce were blue-collar workers. They're going to factories. They're going to mills. They're working hard every single day. And that really speaks to his roots. And that's why he finds it as a critical issue that the Democrats start moving away from the city mentality where they know they can get the votes and they can encourage people to vote for them. And they need to start spreading out to the more rural areas where some of these hard workers are because he knows that they're not lost. At the end of the day, if you go out and speak to them, if you care about the issues that they care about, if you go and just listen, just listen sometimes, it can be enough to persuade them. And he knows this because he grew up in an area that used to be very democratic. And both candidates, they know the issues that the they really need to focus on when speaking to these blue-collar workers, and that's economic issues. At the end of the day, these blue-collar workers care most, or at least are influenced the most, and see the most impact when talking about economic issues, inflation, I mean, that is one of the key issues. Wages are not going up fast enough. And normally, unions help protect the wages of their members. But in certain areas, they're still not, the wages still aren't going up fast enough. And that's what Barnes is trying to really tap into here. And he's trying to re-spark the progressive, the, the small little sprinkles of progressive that are laid in the blue-collar workers. And that's what he's trying to get at. This is something many candidates don't always speak to, or at least in a concrete way, which is they leave the blue-collar wondering what candidates will do for them. 
At, at the end of the day, a lot of these candidates nowadays, they're talking about culture war issues. They're talking about family issues. Great. That's what some blue collar workers care about. But it's more, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're talking about uh, should you have a say in your school? Not all blue collar workers care about that. Now, making sure that they have a strong family union, and that unit that they're able to provide for their kids, they're able to put food on the table. Yes, there we go. That's an issue they care about. But education, maybe not so much. Maybe that's something that doesn't necessarily speak to them as much. And these culture war issues about critical race theory, about sexuality and gender, these are issues that blue-collar workers don't care about as much. Now, they, they may care about them, but at the end of the day, whether that sexual ideology, whether that CRT, you know, that's not going to affect their job. At the end of the day, they're still going to go into the factory. They are still going to do their hard work, and they're still going to come home and have a hard time paying for the gas and paying for the food. And that's what Barnes is kind of getting at. He doesn't outright say it, because I don't think he wants to alienate that part of the party that really does care about those issues. But that's really what he's implying, that we need to get past all these BS issues that Republican that he says Republicans are putting forward just to distract us from actually talking about things that matter. Quote, today, American politics mirrors maritime law. The distance that a county's territory extends off its shores is 12 nautical miles. The median distance that Democratic voters live from a medium or large city center is 12 land miles. That's the figure that professors Andrew Reeves and Brian Moy of Washington University in St. Louis pinpointed in their research on the relationship between geography and political attitudes. By comparison, independent voters live in a median distance of 17 miles and Republican voters a median distance of 20 miles from a city center. This holds in nearly every state in the country, particularly in swing and battleground states. Outside the 12-mile limit in Wisconsin are many former Democrats who feel the big city politicians' agendas do not match up with their own economic realities. Outside, state Democrats once made Wisconsin a blue state. Their exodus from the Democratic Party turned us purple and then made us into the battleground state of the country. End quote. So this is the beauty of the United States, by the way, which is the Federalist slash Republic system. You can vote with your feet. At the end of the day, if you don't like the politics, like these Democratic voters didn't like the politics of some of these up-and-coming Democrats, and I'm assuming he's referring here to maybe the 1980s, the 1990s, they get up and they move, and they bring their vote with them, and then... Sometimes they'll vote for the same policies in the new area and try to make a semblance of what they had in the city, or sometimes they'll vote differently. They'll vote Republican instead of Democrat and see how that turns out for them. And that's the beauty of our system. You can go somewhere else, vote for somebody else, and see if those policies benefit you. And if you don't like it, you can move again, or you can vote somebody else into office. So Nelson really goes on to talk about how he has pushed for policies that have helped the counties that felt that they've been removed from the centers of power, including trying to stop county sales tax and, quote, last, late, late last summer, 2017, when the paper mill just across the Fox River from my hometown came within a hair's breadth 
of closing down permanently. I found a wrinkle in Wisconsin law that gave the union workers and me as the chief local elected official standing to challenge the receivership receivership sale in court. The mill was saved. I wrote a book about it and ran for Senate in the worker's name, end quote. So Nelson's approach here is to talk to the everyday worker, to care about the everyday worker, the man, the unions, and to get the centers of power to realize that they can't just focus and they can't just care about the people that live in those centers of power, like Milwaukee. They have to go out and listen to a wider audience. It's kind of the inverse of what the Republicans have done recently. They really focus on rural areas and they don't really breach into the cities because at the end of the day, they think that they're not going to get those voters. So they don't put as much time and effort in there. And, you know, that may be a okay strategy. It may be working out for them okay. But at the end of the day, it really calcifies where voters are. And it locks in the fact that those, if you don't go into those areas, if you don't work hard enough to try to transition voters in those areas, then they're never going to change. And also, then if you don't go in there and actually listen to them, you're not going to understand what they need and what they want. So even if you are trying to flip them, you're just going to be speaking to issues that don't, they don't necessarily care about as much. And that's the real issue here. Both sides have become so polarized. They believe that they have their voting blocks and they really only speak to them. They don't go to listen to anybody else. And when they do go to listen to somebody else, it's not actually listening. It's, oh, no, no, but here's why you're wrong. Oh, no, no, here's why my policy will work better. Oh, listen to what we can do here, here, and here. So instead of listening and taking in what people say and actually believing that some people, I know, right, some people have an idea of what they want and they know what policies will help them. Oh, my gosh, it's a shocking, shocking idea. But outside these city centers, a lot of people don't see it that way. I mean, sorry, in these city centers, a lot of people don't see it that way. They say, oh, no, no, we know what's best for the the state. We know what people want. We know what will help them. And they're not actually listening to what the voters say. And all it would take is going out and actually listening, taking the time, and maybe they can either change their policy to get those voters or they can convince voters that what they're doing will actually help them. But that can't happen if you don't go out, you don't listen, and you don't give them the time of day. And that's what Nelson's campaign was really about, listening to the small voter. Even though he stepped down and gave his nomination to Barnes, he still brought a large coalition of blue-collar workers who felt that he was speaking on their behalf, and they voted for Barnes, and he almost beat Ron Johnson in the senator race. So this is a path forward for Democrats. If they can actually go back to a grassroots effort like they used to do and really focus on unions and the power of the worker, like Joe Biden is trying to do with his inflation reduction rate uh, infrastructure stuff, then at the end of the day, I think they have a coherent strategy going forward. And maybe, just maybe, they can get those blue-collar workers back on board. All right, so that's enough about internal U.S. politics. Let's move to the world stage. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. Israeli-owned oil tanker hit by suspected Iranian drone. So in the Gulf of Oman, a drone struck a Pacific Zircon, leaving a hole in the ship. Quote, Israeli-owned oil tanker was hit by a suspected Iranian drone Tuesday night in the Gulf of Oman, 
according to people familiar with the incident, creating a hole in the ship but causing no injuries or deaths. The Pacific Zircon is owned by Idan Ofer, a Israeli billionaire who funded Eastern Pacific shipping. Sorry, founded. End quote. And it was relayed to the Wall Street Journal that the crew was safe, thank the Lord, and that there was no oil lost. And like I said, thank the Lord that that's the case, that the drone didn't hit any of the oil storage containers that could have caused a huge fire and an environmental issue as well with oil leaking into the ocean. And that could have been a big disaster. Quote, the U.S. military denounced the attack as another sign of Iran's threat to the Middle East. This unmanned aerial vehicle attack against a civilian vessel in this critical maritime strait demonstrates once again the destabilizing nature of Iran malign activity in the region, said General Michael Eric Kurla, the head of U.S. Central Command, which is responsible for American military operations in the Middle East, end quote. So these are really unstable times in Tehran. If you haven't been paying attention, it's nearly two months now of upheaval at home, of riots over the death of a woman, I don't remember her name, I did an article on it and I feel terrible, who did not want to wear her face covering in public. And she was arrested and then died of suspicious circumstances. So they've been dealing with an upheaval, riots, protests for two, practically two months at this point. So in my opinion, this is Iran trying to project strength, saying we maybe have things going on here at home, but at the end of the day, we could still strike you if we want to. We could still carry on our shadow war with the Israeli government if we so choose. And, you know, actually it is even more scary because they're in a time of protest. They're trying to project strength across the region and they're very unstable, which is, you know, not a good combination. Protests at home, instability, and trying to seem strong. It can lead you to do some pretty desperate things on the world stage. And one of those other desperate actions was a attack that they launched via drone on the Kurdish pop- population in Iraq. And they've also stated that Saudi Arabia is responsible for spurring the protests in their country. And of course, no, it, it can't be that they did anything wrong. No, 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 we didn't do anything wrong. It is the influence of an outside nation that is causing these protests. We, we are righteous in our actions. It, it's just autocracy at its greatest, honestly. Quote, last year, the U.S. accused Iran of launching a deadly drone attack on an Israeli-affiliated oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman that killed two crew members. Western officials said Iran used... Shahid 136 drones, the same kind being used by Russia in Ukraine to hit the Merkel Street tanker. Iran denied any involvement in the attack. Earlier this month, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. shared intelligence suggesting that Iran was poised to carry out an attack on economic targets in the kingdom, though officials said the immediate threat subsided after the journal reported on the warnings. End quote. You know, this is just another ongoing attack in the Iranian and Israeli shadow war that's been going on for a few years at this point. Israel recently has been suspected of striking an Iranian weapons convoy, killing 10 people. So, and the reason I bring that up is at the end of the day, they kind of throw this in at the end of the article because I'm not saying that the Wall Street Journal is pro-Israel and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that 
the American policy currently is pro-Israel. Though we are trying to work with Iran, Trump kind of solidified the pro-Israel approach with the Abraham Accords. So the fact that they just kind of throw that in at the end, trying to leave it there for the readers who don't go all the way to the end, speaks to the fact that we as Americans and as a nation and a government have an agenda. And anything that fits into that agenda, that, oh, Iran's being a evil country, they're being malicious, you know, that's what gets reported on first. And then anything that goes against our narrative, that Israel is good, holy, righteous, that kind of gets thrown in at the end. And what I'm trying to say is both sides have blame in this situation. One side probably has more blame than the other, especially depending on where you come down on the issue, but neither side is blameless. And that's something that you have to keep in mind because this conflict isn't going to end if both sides think that they're righteous in their actions and they just keep on fighting. But, you know, that's enough negative stuff. Let's get into our daily delight. This one comes from, and wait for it, this is a weird website title, but it is what it is, Laughing Squid. Donkey says good morning to his human every day. So, you know, some people have their phone, some people have a rooster, but Tabitha has a donkey as her alarm clock. Quote, an adorable vocal donkey named Hank, who lives at Triple Brook Farm in Ballground, Georgia, wishes his human Tabitha and all the other animals good morning every day with a very loud series of brays. Hank's cheery attitude and his Gregorious nature are sure to brighten anyone's day, end quote. And it's probably a good thing that Tabitha doesn't have any really close neighbors because I doubt that they would find this as cute as most internet viewers and I do, honestly. While Hank gets along, quote, while Hank gets along with all the animals, he has become particularly close with Trip, one of the great Pyrenees dogs at the farm, end quote. So, if you want to see any of the cute videos of Hank calling out in the morning, doing all his brays, or if you want to read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there is also my Twitter handle at your daily flip. I try to post something every single day, uh, news commentary and Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's normally a direct link to the podcast when it either goes live or sometimes a little bit later in the day. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe, don't die.